Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Rachel Mukai-Stark, Smart Cities Program Manager for the City of Charlotte, North Carolina, and Bruce Clark, Executive Director for the Center for Digital Equity at Queen's University of Charlotte. We discuss how broadband access in Charlotte has changed over the years, what's causing the digital divide in the city's roadmap to closing it, the importance of connecting communities with opportunities for digital training, and more. Rachel and Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to get to talk with you both today. Um, so just to start thing, things off, I would I would love if you both took a moment to introduce yourselves and your roles uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Rachel, I'll start with you. I'm Rachel Stark. I am the Smart Cities Program Manager for the City of Charlotte, and I've been in this role for just over six months. Nice. Welcome to the role. Thank you. All right, Bruce, how about you? Well, hey, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for having me today. My name is Bruce Clark. I serve as the executive director for the Center for Digital Equity at Queens University of Charlotte. It's a backbone organization for a collective impact strategy focused on how we make Mecklenburg County the most digitally equitable community in America. And I have been in this role for six years, almost seven, okay. actually. All right. Six and six. All right. Very interesting. So I want to start off uh, talking about the state of broadband access in Charlotte today. Um, how has it changed in recent years and where is the digital divide still present? Bruce, I'm going to come to you for that one first. Well, I think the biggest change in the last couple of years has been a global pandemic. Um, and I don't think that necessarily uh, I mean, obviously, it changed the makeup of the digital divide in some regards, but I think what it what it did in terms of our community was uh, it brought more uh, attention and focus to solving this issue in a concentrated fashion uh, than it had before. So I think what what once was viewed as important um, and something to work towards um, uh, became more essential because of the pandemic. And so, um, what that I think looks like here in Mecklenburg County is uh, more focus on adoption. Um, we we have a high percentage of access already, right? So the infrastructure is in place, um, but what we have challenges on, as is, as is the case in most cities, is around the adoption of the internet. So um, how do we as a community think about supporting our residents who have barriers to adoption uh, so that we can uh, uh, solve one of the complex components of this uh, opportunity we have. Just to stick with you for a moment on barriers to adoption, because this comes up a lot in different conversations, and you'll have some people in the industry suggest that people who don't adopt broadband, a lot of times they just don't want to. Um, from your perspective, is that really the problem? Well, I don't, you know, everyone has their own lived experience and talks to folks and hears a lot of different things. So um, from my experience, what I hear is cost is the number one barrier, affordability uh, uh, to, to maintain the service month over month, especially for the most vulnerable in our communities. And uh, that that is a huge barrier that we've seen play out both in the data and in the stories when we're talking to residents. Uh, you know, I, I suspect there's obviously some percentage of the population, albeit small, who who may uh, who may have relevancy concerns that may not be important to them, I think. Um, but but what I find is even in those scenarios, 
um, if you dig deeper and, and learn more about them and have a conversation with them, it, it relevance is really um, perhaps a veil for insecurity about how to use it. You know, that, that they're, they're fearful of doing something wrong. And so they, so oftentimes they just may present a veil of, of relevancy just to avoid having to, you know, feel shamed about not knowing something. And so, you know, our job as leaders in this space is to, you know, break through those barriers and, and to have the real conversations and to get to know people and their dreams and their wants and their aspirations, which as we know in the world today requires access to the internet, a device that meets those needs and the skills to bring it all together. Thank you. Um, that really helps clarify that. Um, Rachel, I would love to hear a little bit about your perspective on the digital divide from where you sit uh, in the the Smart Cities uh, program. Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh- <clears throat> So I see uh, the digital divide as um, something that really follows the patterns that exist in Charlotte around uh, general issues of, for example, people who need um, WIC programs and other federal and state programs that help support them. You can see also higher poverty rates in those areas. So it really falls in line with affordability being an issue. Um, I would say in terms of broadband access over recent years, one of the things that you can go back and look at is just the infrastructure. I remember when I moved here in 2016, uh, Google Fiber was brand new um, coming into the, to the community. Um, and that really pushed up the fiber game in Charlotte, I think. Um, and Bruce can add to that, but that was my experience. And so now we have it where most of the city is covered by fiber, but there continues to be um, that adoption issue or the use issue of the internet, people actually having subscriptions or, um, and it might be a device issue as well, uh, that, that people are experiencing that divide. Um, and it is really great that uh, through CARES, uh, the CARES Act, we have been able to kind of see that there's opportunities um, as we move forward to really help close that divide because it's something that hasn't had a lot of focus up until the last uh, couple of years with the pandemic and everyone relying on the internet to be able to stay connected, to do work, and to do school. Gotcha. Absolutely. So would you ag- agree with that, Bruce, that Google Fiber coming in kind of changed the infrastructure game? Yeah, I think it was a catalyst for uh, a lot of things, including infrastructure, but also community organizing. I think that the the mm-hmm. brand that is Google was, you know, is exciting, you know, typically viewed in that manner. And so there was energy around it. Uh, and that really was the moment that our digital equity community galvanized here, not so much just about them, them as a single provider, but what is this going to mean for us and what should we be thinking about as a community more broadly? It, it, it really expanded people's way of thinking as they began to then talk to other cities, particularly Kansas city, you know, being the original Google fiber city. And there were a lot of leaders in Kansas city who, you know, who said, yeah, of course, this is a great opportunity, but you all have to think more broadly than just a single provider. You have to think about it from a systemic level. What are we doing as a community not only in, in the infrastructure piece, but in the adoption piece and in the scaling piece, uh, because we know you can't, you know, having the wires in the ground is great, but it's only a fraction of the entire, uh, of the entire needs of a community, right? So you need to be able to adopt it, and the skills, the devices, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that moment, I would say, it, it will always be looked, looked back upon as a turning point in this community. 
Very interesting. Okay. So sticking with you, Bruce, I know that you have a goal of reducing the digital divide. The numbers I have are from 19% to 9% by 2027. I could be wrong. Those could be new numbers now. You can let me know. But tell me a bit more about that goal and how you aim to achieve it. Yeah. So what we say today is we say we want to make Mecklenburg County, and let me say that again, what we believe today, what I believe today is that our goal is to make Mecklenburg County the most digitally equitable community in America. And what that looks like is uh, co-creating solutions between our residents, public and private sector uh, to achieve that goal within the next five years. How, How do we bring together our residents, our public and private sector partners, their resources, their ideas, their time, talent, and treasure to... Uh, really go after this audacious goal as a community. Uh, And so when we think about that, again, you know, continuing the theme here, you know, what does that look like from internet access and adoption? What does that look like from a skilling perspective? Uh, What does that look like from a device perspective? But also what does that look like from a technical support or our digital navigation service? Uh, We have one of the country's first countywide digital navigator services, thanks to the city of Charlotte and a handful of other really important partners who helped get that off the ground. Uh, And and lastly, uh, you know, how are we preparing our community to think about this from a policy and an advocacy perspective, right? So uh, as this opportunity or issue or whatever label you want to put on it evolves, so too must the framework that we're building. It has to be nimble. So we can't just go after, let's say we need 100,000 computers. So let's get 100,000 computers because tomorrow it's going to be 100,010. And so we have to really be thinking more about the way we set up and design our ecosystems to and our partners with, with that resident-centric focus to respond and adapt to this over time. I'll close on this or I'll stop talking on this point, but I think the communities that figure that part out are going to be the communities that are going to thrive into the future. Those that can have nimble, adaptable strategies that are resident-centric and, and, and evolve with the changing nature of technology uh, and the way that we as humans interact, engage, access, adopt those technologies, uh, those that are going to be on the front edge of that, that are going to put residents at the center, are going to be the communities and the cities that are going to thrive well into the future. So, Rachel, coming to you then, um, there's certainly a role for smart cities technology to play in everything that Bruce is talking about. So tell me a bit about the intersection of the smart city programs and digital equity. What role do smart city solutions play in tackling some of these challenges that Bruce is talking about and other equity issues um, in Charlotte? For sure. So um, where we started, um, I think we really can't become a smart city unless you really are closing that digital divide and getting to digital equity. Right. Uh, it's just it's the antithesis of smart to go <laughs> yeah. about that that method. Exactly. Yeah. So for us, it's really important to start with digital inclusion and making sure that we are getting more of our more of our community to participate and benefit from these investments. Um, and making sure that it's not just about us as a city putting in investments that make things more efficient or effective from our perspective, but really also from the community's perspective where they see the benefit, where they get to shape the technology and the data that gets collected. Um, Thinking about relevancy and adoption, uh, part of adoption isn't just using, it's about being able to change and transform something that's being given to you. And so I think um, part of this work 
is really centered around uh, especially engagement and making sure that there's that co-creation that Bruce has already mentioned happening with our residents um, and community members um, and different partners so that people are part of developing the solutions that we need to see in the community. Um, it really takes a lot of different perspectives. It takes a lot of different efforts and a lot of different positions that people are in to be able to bring about the changes that the community would like to see. Um, so smart city technology, uh, we think about oftentimes like AVs and maybe flying cars and drones and all these really interesting things. But um, a lot of those time, a lot of times those are thought of um, from one more narrow perspective. And so how do we really harness that technology and what we can do and really making sure that residents can feed into, well, what is the data that you're collecting? What is the privacy around that data that you're be- that's being collected? Uh, are we safe? Are we secure? Um, are we really achieving that efficiency and effectiveness? And are we able to benefit from these technologies and things like cryptocurrency? Are people being left behind? And is, a, and is our divide um, equitable? Um, is there equity or is there a divide that's being created uh, through this process? Got it. Sounds like a a very exciting place to be working right now. Um, One final question for both of you then. There's obviously a lot of money coming from the government to end this digital divide once and for all, um, and we'll uh, see it pouring in over the next several years. So I want to hear from you about you know, how you're thinking about that funding. Uh, there's even funding for digital equity programs. Um, and also, if if you have any lessons learned from how to collaborate with the uh, state and, and federal agencies on getting these grants when you need them. Um, Rachel, I'll stick with you. And then Bruce, will close out with you. Sounds great. Uh, so we, with our opportunities so far, we've been able to take advantage of CARES funding, which gave us that opportunity to really pilot and test out some strategies to close the digital divide. And the way we started off is looking at a few different aspects. So Bruce already mentioned digital navigators, and that works with our 311 call-in service to help with tech support on our Access Charlotte sites. It also helps people connect with tech opportunities and, and workforce development. Um, as well as general literacy opportunities and more. So that's been one component. Another component is our learning labs, so standing up learning labs and community centers, um, working through our United Way program um, who allocated those funds. Also standing up Wi-Fi at at apartments so that people have access within their homes and working with our housing partners was one of those lessons learned where because we've already made an investment in, in these areas and we have that partnership and the relationship to be able to use that and leverage it for more and working with them to identify, well, where is the greatest need and where, where should we be standing this up first has really created a really great opportunity to really support more residents. Um, and then we also are testing out our public spaces and where does it make sense to put in uh, public Wi-Fi and what speeds are appropriate for these different locations? How much are they getting used? What are they getting used for in public spaces has been something that we're also looking into. And so that informed really our approach to um, the the ARPA funds, American Rescue Plan funds, to see where we should advance. So we're building off of what we've started uh, continuing what we started and building off of what we start, started, expanding the role, looking at also some of the things that our partners have learned. We've uh, the library did public Wi-Fi is doing public Wi-Fi for single-family homes in a neighborhood around a library branch. So building off of some of the lessons learned there, um, looking at um, also partners such as uh, our housing groups who got direct 
um, wired connections into homes and how much that's looked at it oftentimes as like the creme de la creme for access because that's how most of us get our access is wired connections into our homes. Um, but how do we sustain this? How do we transfer this from that into uh, the infrastructure bill with the affordable connectivity plan? How do we make sure those funds are being used and how do we sustain them? Um, in terms of like some of the partnerships, some of the hurdles is the thing that came to mind first, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's around uh, just just looking at uh, having good relationships with our state government. I mean, Bruce mm -hmm. has done a really good job of, of pulling those folks in and the National uh, Digital Inclusion Alliance as well, so that we're nice. kind of on top of those opportunities. Um, also making sure that... Um, we're prepared as much as we can be for hurdles that we know happen around procurement uh, and just approvals and city councils to make, make things move forward. Um, it can be a challenge because a lot of these grants have timeframes of one year, two years, three years, and um, the processes that we have in place are, are just really tough sometimes to, to work with. Yeah. So I really appreciate when the federal government gives us a little bit longer uh, timeframe to get that run, that runway laid out uh, to make, to make that happen. Um, but yeah, we're, we're really leaning on all of those. And as the infrastructure bill comes through, I think it's really just about working with our state government and making sure that we're doing a good job of testing things out, tracking the benefits, tracking the impact of what we're doing so that we can turn around and say, here's what we've learned. Here's how we can apply this and um, making sure that we can grow it when those opportunities do arise. Bruce, <laughs> you probably have a lot to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you did, you, no. I think the just to pull on the, one of the themes that I, I think is what we hope will distinguish us uh, in a you know in a competitive grant process. Let's just say that where whether that's happening at the state level or at the federal level um, is around the idea of the strength of the partnerships and the co-creation with residents. So resident, public, private sector. If, if we, when, as we bring those three together, which we, we have already been doing since October of last year in a very concentrated fashion, it's historically been happening for years, but really since October, that when we submit our applications for these grant funding or wh whatever the funding opportunity is, that we are doing it as a broad of a coalition of partners as possible to show both the strength and the, and the collaboration so that uh, we can maximize the uh, maximize these public dollars that have been entrusted to our community to spend wisely, and I think what that looks like really practically is, you know, it, it, you know, as we've seen, the let's take one funding source, the ECF uh, Education Connectivity Fund or Emergency Connectivity Fund. I always forget the E, yeah. but the money for schools and libraries, right? If yes. our school district is getting money and our library is getting money, how can we bring those two together alongside of our city and county uh, partners with the public or with the private sector who's also investing in digital equity uh, here in this community and our residents to ensure that whatever we're going to fund is what the residents want and is, co is coordinated amongst those multitude of partners to the best of our abilities so that we maximize the trust that we've been given to spend these public dollars or, or that whatever agency has been given to spend them um, and that we don't duplicate efforts, right? I think I always imagine this scenario, not imagine, I had nightmares about a scenario of <laughs> the, you know, the city and the county and the library and the school district, like all showing up in the same neighborhood, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to put Wi-Fi here. No, I'm going to put Wi-Fi here. No, I'm going to put Wi-Fi here. Right. And what, what has happened in Charlotte 
and I think this is part of a number of, there's a whole other podcast about Charlotte, but one of the things is we're, you know, we're obviously a growing city. There's a desire to collaborate. There's a, there's an interest in getting it right. Um, there's an open kind of an open door sense about that collaboration that's bringing partners to the table. And so we've seen in the last year, especially with CARES Act funds, where that collaboration has uh, prevented duplication and enhanced the delivery of services to residents. So from a, from a, coming back to your question, from a funding perspective, that's number one on our list is making sure that we have that partnership in place and strong um, and, and rooted in, in the resident perspective so that we can um, achieve these objectives. I think we're fortunate to be in a state in North Carolina that has one of the country's first office of digital equity uh, and, and their leadership um, in, you know, from a state perspective. So really strong relationships there. We're excited about the possibilities and the upcoming, upcoming funding and, and coming back to the federal side goes back to my first point. I think we'll be at the top of the list because we're coming as a team. Nice. Wow. Well, the uh, great people of Charlotte and North Carolina at large are lucky to have you both. I really enjoyed talking to you and I'm looking forward to keeping up with your work. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nicole. This is a really exciting opportunity to be able to share what we're doing. And uh, I think working with Bruce has been elemental to what we're doing from the city perspective. Thank you again, Rachel and Bruce, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landrio, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.